To get this episode of Forensic Tales ad-free, please visit patreon.com slash Forensic Tales. Forensic Tales discusses topics that some listeners may find disturbing. The contents of this episode may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. On Friday, August 15, 1978, dozens of SWAT officers rush to a small house in Washington, D.C. They know they're dealing with a dangerous suspect, a double murder suspect. He's presumed armed and dangerous as officers prepare to storm the home. After they pound on the front door, a woman answers. Police ask for Sante Tribble. He's my son, the woman answers. The officers storm past the woman and find 17-year-old Sante Tribble in the basement watching TV with his girlfriend. They quickly slap handcuffs on him and take him into custody. Case closed, right? No. This is just the beginning. This is Forensic Tales, episode number 134, The Story of Sante Tribble. Welcome to Forensic Tales. I'm your host, Courtney Fretwell Ariola. Forensic Tales is a weekly true crime podcast covering real, spine-tingling stories with a forensic science twist. Some cases have been solved with forensic science, while others have turned cold. Every remarkable story sends us a chilling reminder that not all stories have happy endings. As a one-woman show, your support helps me find new exciting cases, conduct in-depth fact-based research, produce and edit this weekly show. As a thank you for supporting the show, you'll get early ad-free access to weekly episodes, shout-outs and episodes, priority on case suggestions, and access to weekly bonus episodes. To support Forensic Tales, please visit patreon.com slash Forensic Tales or simply click the link in the show notes. You can also support the show by leaving a positive rating with a review. Now, let's get to this week's story. On Friday, August 15, 1978, dozens of Washington, D.C. police officers showed up at a small house in the southeastern part of the city. The officers arrived dressed head-to-toe in SWAT tactical gear and were ready to make a major arrest. They weren't sure if the suspect they were there to arrest would fight back or shoot at them, so they had to approach the situation carefully. Thoughts crossed the officers' minds that the person they were coming for was willing to go down in a gunfight. The person they were there to handcuff was accused of murdering two people in cold blood. If this guy was willing to kill two innocent people, what would stop him from killing a police officer? After they got to the house, officers pounded on the front door, shouting at the people inside to come out with their hands up. Within seconds, a woman answered the door. The officers asked her if Sante Tribble lived there. The woman said, yes, that's my 17-year-old son. He's downstairs in the basement with his girlfriend. 
Police officers rushed down to the basement where they found Sante Tribble and his girlfriend sitting on the couch watching TV. Shocked, Sante Tribble asked the officers if they were there to collect on the two unpaid traffic tickets he had. The officers responded, no, we're not here for unpaid traffic citations. We're here to arrest you for two counts of first-degree murder. Washington, D.C. police officers put Sante in handcuffs and escorted him out of his mother's house. On the way out, he told his girlfriend and mother that he had no idea what the officers were talking about and said that he had nothing to do with any murders. Once they got outside, Sante was placed in the back of a patrol car and taken to the police station. Now facing two murder charges, Sante knew this was much more serious than unpaid traffic tickets. At only 17 years old, he understood he wasn't going home anytime soon. One month earlier, two middle-aged white men were tragically killed right down the street from Sante Tribble's mother's house. The first victim was William Horn. On July 13, 1978, 52-year-old William Horn, a floral shop worker, was headed home after a night out. As he pulled into his driveway, a man approached him and shot him. After shooting and killing him, the unknown perpetrator reached into William Horn's wallet and robbed him. When the police were called to the house, the only solid piece of evidence they found was a shell casing from a 32 caliber handgun. After William Horn, it was John McCormick. In the early morning hours of July 26, 1978, 63-year-old taxi cab driver John McCormick was shot and killed outside his Washington, D.C. home. That night, John McCormick finished the night shift driving for the company Diamond Cab. His wife, Belva McCormick, was inside the house and heard what sounded like her husband pleading for his life. When she got up and looked outside the window, she saw her husband kneeling on the ground. She also saw a second person wearing a stocking over his head, pointing a gun at her husband. Seconds later, the masked man pulled the trigger, instantly killing John McCormick. As the gunman ran away, Belva called the Washington, D.C. police. But when the police and paramedics arrived, they were too late. When they got there... John McCormick was found dead on his front porch. Not long after the police began investigating John McCormick's murder, a police dog found a stocking on a sidewalk about a block away. The stocking matched the description Belva told the police the man who shot her husband was wearing. Because the stocking was found only a block away, the police theorized that whoever shot and killed John McCormick ditched the stocking when he ran out of the neighborhood. Like in the shooting death of William Horn on July 13th, Washington, D.C. police also found a bullet from a 32 caliber handgun near John McCormick's body. When investigators sent the shell casings to the lab to be compared, the test confirmed that both bullets came from the same 32 caliber pistol. This suggested to the investigators that their shooting deaths may be related. But it wasn't only the 32 caliber bullets that made the police suspect that the same shooter was behind both murders. There was also the M.O. Both victims were middle-aged white men, 
Both were shot and killed near their homes, and both William Horn and John McCormick had been shot to death and robbed. Over the next week, the Washington, D.C. Police Department investigated both shooting deaths. They also considered the possibility that these shootings were somehow related, and if they were, they needed to find out who the gunman was. Detectives began speaking with people in the neighborhood. By speaking with people, they hoped someone in the area had either heard or seen something on either night the shootings happened. They also wanted to find out if anyone knew of someone owning a similar handgun used in both murders. While speaking with people in the neighborhood, detectives got their first tip in the investigation. The police sat down with Bobby Jean Phillips, also known as B.J. Phillips. Nine days after John McCormick's murder, B.J. Phillips approached Washington, D.C. police officers and said she had information about the murders they might find interesting. She said her roommate purchased a 32 caliber revolver for $60 a few weeks earlier. When detectives tracked down B.J. Phillips' roommate, the first question they asked her was, who sold you that 32 caliber gun? Her response surprised investigators. She said it was her boyfriend, 20-year-old Cleveland Wright, and his friend, 17-year-old Sante Tribble. Now that detectives had a solid lead, they needed to determine if that particular gun had been used in either shooting. Investigators asked B.J. Phillips if she still had any old shell casings from the gun. B.J. Phillips agreed to turn over a few casings she still had, and as soon as the police got them, they submitted them to the lab to be compared. At the crime lab, scientists compared the casings that Phillips gave them to the casings recovered at both crime scenes. When a bullet is fired from a gun, the gun leaves microscopic marks on the bullet and cartridge case. These marks are like ballistic fingerprints in the field of firearm identification. In this case, investigators don't have the actual gun. They only have two similar-looking shell casings found at two separate crime scenes. So the best they could do to determine was that both of the shell casings came from the two crime scenes from the same gun. After comparison, the scientists confirmed that the shell casings from both scenes had come from the same gun. The only problem was that the police didn't have the actual handgun. And without a gun, it was impossible to say whether it came from the gun that B.J. Phillips said her roommate purchased from Wright and Tribble. All he could determine was that they came from the same 32 caliber. Right after the police found out about the gun, they heard from another person. This time, it was 17-year-old Ronald Willis. Ronald Willis told Washington, D.C. detectives that he thought he knew who was involved in one of the shootings. He said it was 20-year-old Cleveland Wright. Investigators quickly connected their two suspects, Sante Tribble and Cleveland Wright. Sante was considered a suspect because his girlfriend purchased that 32 caliber gun a few weeks before the murders. And Cleveland Wright was considered a suspect because a witness, Ronald Willis, had come forward to the police saying that he thought he did it. 
According to Ronald Willis's initial statement to the police, he only thought Cleveland Wright was involved in William Horn's murder. He told the police he knew nothing about John McCormick's murder and that he didn't believe Sante Tribble was involved in either murder. Washington, D.C. police believed they had enough evidence to make arrests in both shootings. They decided to arrest both 17-year-old Sante Tribble and his friend, 20-year-old Cleveland Wright, for both murders. Hey, Forensic Tales listeners, Courtney here. Do you hate listening to ads? Well, you can listen to every single episode of this show ad-free through Patreon, starting for just $3 a month. And what's great? You don't have to change how you listen. You can still enjoy ad-free episodes of Forensic Tales through most podcast apps. As a patron, you'll also get other great perks, like weekly bonus episodes. This is where I give you my reaction to each week's story that I don't share in regular episodes. But more importantly, your support means I can continue to deliver high-quality weekly true crime stories. Don't forget, Forensic Tales is just a one-woman show. If you're interested in learning more, go to patreon.com slash Forensic Tales. That's patreon.com slash Forensic Tales. There's also a link in the show notes. Now, back to the episode. Sante Tribble dropped out of school when he was only in the ninth grade. After dropping out of high school, he spent his days hanging out with friends and meeting girls. But things in his life started to change when his friends grew up and were beginning to graduate from high school. Sante's friends either went on to get jobs or join the military. But Sante stayed at his mom's house in Washington, D.C. Sante, his brother, and two sisters grew up in a typical all-American working-class family. When Sante and his siblings were young, their father, a warehouse worker, left the family, leaving Sante's mom to become a single mother and bear the sole responsibilities of raising four young children on her own. Growing up, his mom worked full-time as an assistant nurse at Glendale Hospital. After she got home from working a full day, she became a full-time mom to Sante and his siblings. She did everything from cooking to cleaning to helping the kids with homework. As hard as she worked, she also knew it was important to have fun and make memories with her children. She often took the kids on trips to Atlantic City during the summer, or make a trip out to Austin to see their cousins. After Sante dropped out of high school, he drifted. At one point, he dreamed of following in his brother, James Jr.'s footsteps by joining the army. But those dreams seemed to disappear when Sante found himself simply trying to make ends meet by working different part-time jobs. He did everything from bussing tables at local restaurants to pumping gas at gas stations. As a teenager, Sante was introduced to Cleveland Wright. Although Cleveland was three years older than Sante, the two guys instantly hit it off and became friends. Their friendship blossomed over their shared interest in dice and cards. The two would often play cards together all day long, winning up to $60 a day. Cleveland Wright came from a rural town in North Carolina. He grew up boxing and gained the nickname Bolo, 
after knocking someone out in the gym. But besides dice, cards, and boxing, he had other passions. He liked going out on the water and catching crawfish, or hunting squirrels in the green spaces of Anacosia. By the summer of 1978, Cleveland Wright and Sante Tribble found their friendship drifting apart. Cleveland was doing his own thing, while Sante was spending most of his free time with his new girlfriend. But by August 1978, they found themselves close again. This time, it was because they were both on trial for murder. When the Washington, D.C. police officers canvassed the neighborhood, they couldn't find a single eyewitness who saw the shooter at either scene. The only pieces of physical evidence they had were the shell casings and the hat stocking found on a sidewalk down the street from one of the victim's houses, John McCormick. But even without eyewitnesses, Washington, D.C. police and prosecutors believed they had enough evidence implicating Sante and Cleveland in the murders. One of the most significant witnesses for the prosecution was 17-year-old Ronald Willis. Ronald Willis was friends with both Sante and Cleveland. Initially, Ronald Willis told the police that it was Cleveland who shot and killed William Horn and that Sante had nothing to do with it. But over the next several months, his story changed. When a grand jury was convened to hear evidence in the case that November, Ronald Willis changed his story. In front of a grand jury, he said that Sante Tribble was actually involved in the shooting. He testified that Sante told him he was Cleveland Wright's lookout during the shooting. But it wasn't just Ronald Willis's story that changed. The other star witness for the prosecution also changed her story, Bobby Jean Phillips, a.k.a. B.J. Phillips. At first, she said Sante had admitted to her about being around when Cleveland Wright shot and killed a man in circumstances matching William Horn's death. She didn't say that Sante told her it was William Horn, but she said he admitted to being around Wright during a similar incident. But later on, B.J. Phillips' story seemed to change a bit. Later, she said that Sante told her he was with Cleveland Wright when he shot John McCormick, not William Horn, like she had said earlier. Putting witness testimony aside, police and prosecutors still felt like they had enough to secure a conviction in both murders. According to them, they had the forensics to prove they had the right guys behind bars. After John McCormick's body was found lying on his front porch, a police dog found a stocking on a sidewalk about a block away. When John's wife called the police, she told them she saw the shooter wearing a stocking that covered most of his face, so she couldn't get a good look at him. When the police recovered the stocking and placed it into evidence, they also submitted it to the FBI for testing. When the stocking got to the FBI's crime lab, they tested it for any trace evidence. They wanted to find any evidence left behind by the person who wore it. Because it was found only a block away from McCormick's house, this was likely the same stocking the shooter wore and ditched on his way out of the neighborhood that night. Forensic experts with the FBI 
pulled a single strand of hair from inside the stocking. The hair was placed underneath a microscope for examination. Because this was during the 1970s, the FBI's crime lab didn't have DNA testing. They didn't have a way to extract DNA from the hair. When it came to hair examination and criminal investigations, the only thing forensic experts could do was examine the hair underneath a microscope and then compare the hair to a suspect and look for similarities in the two strands of hair. It was all done based on physical examination underneath a microscope. The FBI compared the strand of hair to both Cleveland Wright's and Sante Tribble's hair. The FBI was able to rule out Cleveland Wright, but they weren't able to rule out Sante Tribble. According to the FBI's forensic experts, the strand of hair recovered at the scene matched Sante's, quote, in all microscopic characteristics, end quote. In other words, the FBI believed it was Sante Tribble's hair found in the stocking down the street from one of the murder scenes. In January 1980, Sante Tribble's first-degree murder trial began less than two years after the shootings. At trial, the prosecution relied heavily on the hair evidence. They drilled it home to the jury that it was Sante's hair found inside the stocking. An FBI hair analysis testified that he microscopically compared a hair found at the crime scene to hairs taken from Sante. Based on his observation, he concluded that one of the hairs from the crime scene matched him and there was only, quote, one chance in 10 million that the hair could belong to anyone else, end quote. Bobby Jean Phillips also testified for the prosecution. She was the witness who claimed Sante in Cleveland sold a 32 caliber gun for $60 to her roommate, who just so happened to be one of their girlfriends. During her testimony, she implicated both men. She testified that Sante told her he was with Cleveland when he shot and killed John McCormick. She also said that Sante told her they hailed McCormick's taxi cab and that Cleveland shot them after they went a few blocks together. But Sante's defense raised concerns about the prosecution's evidence and witnesses, starting with the murder weapon. Sante's defense team argued that the state couldn't prove their client was the shooter. Although the police determined that 32 caliber casings recovered from both victims were fired from the same gun, the police never found the gun itself. And without the gun, they couldn't link the casings to the missing weapon sold by their two suspects, Tribble and Wright. When the police searched Sante's house after the murders, they found a box of bullets inside of his closet. But when they compared the bullets to those found at the crime scenes, they didn't match. The defense also raised concerns about the prosecution's two star informants, Bobby Jean Phillips and Ronald Willis, especially when it came to Ronald Willis. At the same time the murder trial got underway for Sante, Ronald Willis was facing criminal charges for robbery and a probation violation. 
he agreed to testify against Sante in Cleveland in exchange for a reduced sentence and a plea bargain. In return for his testimony, he received two years of probation as a youth offender. Sante's defense team argued that the only evidence against him in William Horn's murder was Ronald Willis's testimony that Sante told him he was Cleveland Wright's lookout during the shooting. Remember, this was Ronald Willis's second story to the police. At first, he said he didn't think Sante had anything to do with either murder. It wasn't until he testified in front of the grand jury that his story changed and he said that Sante was the lookout. The defense argued that this testimony shouldn't be trusted. Ronald Willis has a motive to lie. He was getting a reduced sentence in another case in exchange for his testimony in this case. At trial, Sante took the stand in his own defense. Anytime you're dealing with a first-degree murder charge, having the defendant take the stand is always a risky decision. Defense attorneys can prep their clients to ensure they're ready, but they can't always predict what type of questions the prosecution will ask. They also can't always predict how their client will come across to the jury. Sometimes when a defendant takes the stand, it helps their case. The jury empathizes with them. But other times, the opposite happens. Sometimes when they take the stand, the jury doesn't like them. They come across as liars or simply someone who seems guilty for no real reason at all. But when it came to Sante's decision to take the stand or not, he decided he would. He wanted his opportunity to tell the jury his side of the story. When he got on the stand, he stuck to his original story that he had nothing to do with either murder. He said the police administered a polygraph test shortly after his arrest and that he passed with flying colors. He reminded the jury that his story hasn't changed once over the last two years. Sante's brother and girlfriend also took the stand in his defense. His brother and girlfriend both testified that Sante had spent both nights at his mother's apartment in Seat Pleasant, Maryland, and he never left. According to them, Sante was with them all night, and he could have never left to commit the murders. Before closing arguments, Sante's defense attorneys brought up one critical aspect of his character— They reminded the jury that Sante had absolutely no criminal record. Before this case, he had never been arrested, besides two $10 fines he received for playing dice in public. Other than that, his record was squeaky clean. The defense argued why someone like Sante went from having a spotless record to now becoming a robber and a murderer. After three days of testimony, the case was handed over to the jury. Two hours after the jury began deliberations, they returned to the judge with a question. Which stalking was found at the end of the alley on 28th Street? After the judge confirmed it was the one containing a single hair that the FBI traced to Sante, the jury's verdict came only 40 minutes later. The jury acquitted Sante in William Horn's murder, but they convicted him in John McCormick's murder. The jury believed that the prosecution 
didn't prove its case in the William Horn case because the only evidence they had came from Ronald Willis, who the jury considered an unreliable witness. The jury didn't like that Willis's story changed about Santi's involvement, and they didn't like the fact that he received a reduced sentence. But when it came to John McCormick's murder, the jury sided with the prosecution. They couldn't ignore the forensic evidence. Sante Tribble's hair was found on the stocking at the murder scene. After his guilty conviction, the court sentenced him to 20 years to life in prison. Next, it was Cleveland Wright's turn to stand trial. Like Sante, he faced two counts of first-degree murder. But when it came time for the jury to deliberate his fate, his case had the opposite result. He was convicted of killing William Horn, but he was acquitted of John McCormick's murder. Like his friend, Sante, he was also sentenced to 20 years to life in prison. After the trials, both men were shipped to prison to serve their sentences. Sante was only 19 years old and Cleveland was barely 22. Both men were looking at spending the rest of their lives behind bars. As soon as they arrived at the prison, both men appealed their convictions, but both appeals were denied and both of their convictions were upheld. Even after their convictions, Sante and Cleveland maintained their innocence. They were adamant that they had nothing to do with either murder. Sante also asserted that the FBI must have made a mistake when they said it was his hair found inside that stocking. According to him, they must have made a mistake because he wasn't there and he didn't do it. For the next two decades, Sante and his friend sat in prison. Because of the time he still had remaining on his sentence, he wasn't allowed to attend either of his parents' funerals. His father, who visited him almost every weekend while in prison, passed away in 1992, and his mother died two years later in 1994. After serving 20 years, Sante was eligible for parole. By this point, he was no longer a teenager. He'd become an adult who had spent his almost entire life in prison. On his first attempt at parole, the parole board denied him. Although he had a clean prison disciplinary record, the parole board cited his crime severity and age at the time. After the board denied his request for parole, he was sent back. Three years later, he tried his hand at parole again. By this point, he had served 23 years. Fortunately for Sante, this time around was different. After hearing about the case, the parole board decided to grant him parole. And in April of 2003, Sante was released from prison after almost two decades. Following his release from prison, he hopped on a Greyhound bus and headed back to Washington, D.C. It was in Washington, D.C. that he reunited with his brother. From the very beginning, Sante's brother and the rest of their family believed in his innocence. If Sante said he didn't do it, he didn't do it, despite the forensic evidence pointing towards his guilt. After he was released from prison on parole, 
Sante had difficulty adjusting to life outside of prison. As a convicted murderer, finding a steady job was difficult, especially when you're on parole and have weekly check-ins with your parole officer. He wasn't allowed to vote. He also couldn't enjoy many things people who haven't been to prison take for granted, like traveling. Once he was released, he wanted to join his family on a cruise that they would take every two years. But because he was on parole, he was never allowed to get a passport. Traveling internationally was against the terms of his parole. There was also the stigma of being a convicted felon. And not only a felon, a convicted murderer. As a society, we tend to look down on or scrutinize people convicted of a serious crime. We often see these people as less than because they've committed a crime. Sante Tribble was no different. When he returned home to Washington, D.C., many people thought that a murderer was now living among them. During Sante's three years on parole, he received several parole violations. These violations caused him to serve an additional three years in prison, making his total time in prison 25 years. On March 1, 2007, after serving over 20 years himself, Cleveland Wright was also released on parole. But this isn't where their stories end. This is where their stories just began. In 2009, Sante read a news article about an exoneration. It was the exoneration of Donald Gates. Donald Gates had been convicted of a murder in Washington, D.C., based on hair analysis conducted by the FBI. As soon as Sante read the news article, he thought, that's me. Mitochondrial DNA testing of the hair evidence in the Donald Gates case showed that the hair used to convict him was not his hair. Sante decided to reach out to Sandra Levick, a public defender with the Public Defender Service of the District of Columbia. He picked her because she represented Donald Gates in his appeal. After reading about Sante's case, Sandra Levick agreed to take on the case. She saw a lot of similarities between Sante's case and Donald Gates's case. Both men had been convicted almost solely on hair evidence that was analyzed before DNA testing was available. In February 2011, she filed court papers seeking to have evidence in Sante's case retested. Now that mitochondrial DNA testing was available, she wanted to see if the hair stood the test of advanced DNA testing. The court agreed to allow her to retest the evidence, and the hair evidence was sent for mitochondrial DNA at Mitotyping Technologies of State College, Pennsylvania. Once they had the hair, Sante Tribble and Cleveland Wright submitted their DNA for comparison. On January 5, 2012, the lab returned the results. Their test concluded that none of the hairs recovered from the stocking, including the one that the FBI said matched Sante's, shared Sante or Cleveland's genetic profile. DNA testing excluded both Sante and Cleveland as sources of the hair and proved 
that the hair used to convict Sante did not come from him or from his friend Cleveland Wright. More advanced DNA testing also revealed that the strand of hair didn't even come from a human. The hair came from a dog. It was dog's hair the police found inside the stocking. Armed with conclusive DNA evidence that Sante Tribble was innocent, U.S. Attorney Ronald Machin Jr. agreed to dismiss the charges against Sante in April 2012. And on May 11th, District of Columbia Superior Court Judge Laura Cordero vacated the conviction and dismissed the charges. A few months later, in December 2012, Sante was granted a Certificate of Innocence, which entitled him to $50,000 in compensation for each year he was wrongfully imprisoned. In February of 2016, he was awarded $13.2 million under the District of Columbia Unjust Imprisonment Act. He also received an additional undisclosed amount in a federal civil rights lawsuit in 2016. After Sante Tribble, it was Cleveland Wright's turn. In August of 2013, the same attorney who got Sante's conviction overturned also filed paperwork to have Cleveland Wright's conviction overturned. She also filed paperwork for him to be granted a certificate of innocence. On January 28, 2014, a judge vacated Cleveland's conviction and dismissed it. And in May 2015, he was granted his Certificate of Innocence. This meant that, like his friend, he was also entitled to receive $50,000 for each of the 28 years he spent in prison. Although Sante Tribble finally had his truth revealed, he had already spent 25 years in prison for a crime he didn't commit. He also wasn't around very long to enjoy his free life. Sante died on June 24, 2020, from an unknown illness that his family attributes to his long incarceration. Before he died, he made a comment published in the Washington Post. He said in the article that he has no guilt about what he did. However, he does admit that not taking a plea deal may have caused him to serve much longer in jail instead of maintaining his innocence. Even though he is innocent, he believes that this decision to not take a plea deal cost him years more in prison. Over recent years, the Innocence Project and the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers have pushed for a review of all FBI cases, state and federal, where a defendant was convicted and FBI hair analysis was used to implicate them. After review, they found a total of 3,000 cases in which FBI examiners had submitted reports on hair analysis. According to the Innocence Project website, after looking into the first 260 cases, the FBI acknowledged that its examiners had given erroneous statements that wrongfully implicated the accused in at least 90% of these cases. To date, 16 wrongfully convicted people 
based on hair analysis, have had their convictions vacated. Ten of those people have been completely exonerated. As DNA technology advances in the field of hair analysis, there are expected to be more convictions overturned in the future, just like in Sante Tribble's case. To share your thoughts on Sante Tribble's story, be sure to follow the show on Instagram and Facebook. To find out what I think about the case, sign up to become a patron at patreon.com slash forensictales. After each episode, I release a bonus episode where I share my personal thoughts and opinions about the case. To check out photos from the case, be sure to head to our website, ForensicTales.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the show so you don't miss an episode. We release a new episode every Monday. If you love the show, consider leaving us a positive review or tell friends and family about us. You can also help support the show through Patreon. Thank you so much for joining me this week. Please join me next week. We'll have a brand new case and a brand new story to talk about. Until then, remember, not all stories have happy endings. Forensic Tales is a Rockefeller audio production. The show is written and produced by me, Courtney Fretwell Ariola. For a small monthly contribution, you can help create new compelling cases for the show, help fund research, and assist with production and editing costs. In addition, for supporting the show, you'll become one of the first to listen to new ad-free episodes and snag exclusive show merchandise not available anywhere else. To learn about how you can help support the show, head over to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash forensictales, or simply click the support link in the show notes. You can also support the show by leaving a positive rating with a review. Forensic Tales is a podcast made possible by our Patreon producers, Tony A., Nicole L., David B., Nicole G., Paula G., Christine B., Karen D., Nancy H., Sherry A., and Jamie Y. If you'd like to become a producer of the show, head over to our Patreon page or send me an email, Courtney at ForensicTales.com, to find out how you can become involved. For a complete list of sources used in this episode, please visit ForensicTales.com. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next week. Until then, remember, not all stories have happy endings.